Paul, can can you uh, can you give us spoilers for the rest of the book? Uh, let's see. I I think I actually have to look at the table of contents. Uh, <laughs> so, do they finally um, get get together at the end? Uh, well, they go to the top of this big fiery uh, volcano like thing, and they throw the ring in. And it turns out that they're secretly brother and sister. <laughs> <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 76 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hi, I'm Avdi, head chef at rubytavis.com. We also have Josh Susser. Hey, good morning, everyone. Every day is an adventure. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Paul Dix. Hi, everybody. I'm Paul Dix. I am the co-founder of Airplane and also the author of the book for this week. Awesome. Yeah, so if you didn't know, we're doing the book club this week. We're going to be talking about service-oriented architectures. I think the the full title is With Ruby and Rails. So let's get started. Definition. Definition. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Actually, before we get started, do one of you guys have a best of parlay? Oh, do we have a best of Parlay? There was so much stuff on Parlay this week. There was some really good stuff. The the funny thing is, like, the first thing that comes to my mind um, was a tangent uh, somebody, there, there was a really interesting uh, conversation about, I forget what now, but somebody posted some really nicely formatted source code uh, in their email, and, uh, and, and that led to some questions about how they did that, and it turns out that there's a, a browser plugin, or a, a browser, browser extension that lets you easily type Markdown into your email, so that's like the first thing, uh, yeah, or into your Gmail. Oh, that was Chris Hunt's uh, reply about about uh, how we would do um, date formatting. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Yes, that was a pretty impressively formatted email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was, that was like the first thing that, that, that sprang to my mind. Also, there's been an interesting thread about what people did for Rails Rumble. Oh, yeah, um, that, yeah, some, some cool stuff there. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there's been a bunch of, bunch of cool stuff. Oh, okay, so, so for people who are just tuning in, the um, Parlay is the Ruby Rogues listeners email list and it's a it's a way to pay us ten dollars a year to support the show and also to get on a private forum where you can talk spam free with uh with the rogues and others of our listeners so that's it for our plug go, oh, go oh, to rubyrogues.com to f- sign up yeah <laughs> maglev and 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 object prevalence and stuff that was a cool thread too yeah it's been a good week mm-hmm. yep all right, well, let's get into the topic then and talk about uh, service-oriented architectures. So somebody was calling for a definition, and I will let our definition master go ahead and take it away. <laughs> well, well, I, I like that um, in the book, Paul distinguished between calling something service-oriented architecture versus and, and why he used the term service-oriented design in the title of the book, and that uh, you know, service-oriented architecture had been polluted with the association uh, with SOAP 
and Java and XML and all those things. <laughs> so uh, ra rather rather than steal Paul's thunder, I'm I'm going to toss this at Paul and ask Paul for a definition of service orientation. Yeah, when I talk about service oriented design, it's really about the idea of taking a large, complex application which can consist of many different parts. Uh, and you know, typically in Rails, you have this like monolithic application where everything is contained in the same code base. You're talking about your models, your views, your controllers, and even stuff like your workers that do background processing. And the idea around service-oriented design is to take long-lived parts that may have different properties to them in terms of scalability or uh, APIs that they need to provide and separating them out, like pulling them out into a different code base, possibly a different deployment platform, a different language, and they could use different underlying storage systems as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, yeah, I, I remember hearing about service-oriented architecture, uh, and I saw a book on it uh, like five years ago. So it's definitely not brand spanking new. People have been doing this for a while. I mean, I, how, how far back does this sort of thing go? To be honest, I, I don't know. Like, service-oriented architecture is a phrase. Probably, I, I'm guessing, goes back to the 90s. But the idea of splitting complex systems out into separate pieces that have some sort of communication channel that, they, that allows them to sync up to each other or work together, like, that's obviously something that's been around for a long time. And really, when I talk about service-oriented design, I'm talking about that overall concept of splitting things out and providing a layer of abstraction around some underlying complexity and then presenting some sort of interface or API either through web services or through a messaging system or whatever, whatever the thing may be. Whereas I felt like service-oriented architecture was too specifically tied to this idea of XML-based web services that were usually SOAP or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think that um, a lot of people who've, who've built Rails applications have done some level of service-oriented design in their application. And I think there's two places where people usually get started doing that. One is um, doing a background job for sending emails, and the other is hooking in Solar to do text searching. So the, the email thing is, is funny to me because I, I guess I'm not sure if that counts as service-oriented design. If you're talking about using Mailgun as like, or something like that, an external email service provider, mm -hmm. then it's service-oriented design, but you're not the one doing the design. Like You're just interfacing with another service. Mm -hmm. The actual background workers themselves, uh, in my mind, if you have that code inside your Rails application code base, and it's using the Rails models, uh, even if it's running in a separate process, that's not service-oriented design. That's still part of the whole thing. Um, ah, okay. Solar, I would agree completely, that's, that's a service-oriented design because then you're talking about you have this separate process running on a sep maybe a separate system, but it provides a clear service that you're accessing. So Solar's one, uh, like Amazon Simple Email Service is another, or Mailgun or whatever. But the idea that I'm putting forth in, in the book is about designing your own services for specific business logic or things that you're doing. So it just so happens to like text in full text search and sending emails and stuff like Twilio, like sending text messages. Those, those are things that lend themselves well to services and also for email and text messaging lend themselves well to third-party services. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I should probably mention S3 is the thing that 
probably everybody does. <laughs> the, yeah, that it, you, you'd you'd uh, you'd count S three as uh, as that kind of service too. Absolutely. I think Amazon's model with, you know, Amazon Web Services was a, a very big inspiration for me as I was writing the book. And also their model of how they approach things internally. I, I use as an example how, you know, when Amazon first started, they had this monolithic application and they, they switched over to like this weird like two-tier architecture with like database and all this other stuff. And then at some point, their code base was getting so large and it was getting so hard to like deploy new features or get anything done that they knew they had to move to something that broke these things out into different pieces, but they weren't sure how to make that move. And essentially, uh, I've, I've heard Werner Vogels like, speak on this and say like, Bezos like, basically laid down a mandate that said, all new code being produced is going to be uh, a service, which means it's going to be something that runs independently and it can be network accessible. Uh, and then they just went down this road of like breaking things out so that, you know, like the recommender system is a specific service that you can call out to to say, get me recommendations for this user or for this item. You know, the catalog service or the actual like cart checkout service. And then, you know, much later, they branched out into actual, you know, the Amazon Web Services, which, you know, they provide out to everybody else. Right. So um, one thing that I've run into talking to people about this, and I actually gave a talk about this last week about uh, service-oriented architectures, but uh, one thing that people ask about is latency between the services. So, for example, if you have all of your code being handled on the same server within the same system, you know, it's obviously faster than calling out to, to a service to get information and then coming back and, and uh, providing it to the user. Um, wh what do you usually tell people to address that concern? So with that, I think there, there are a few different levels. Uh, if you have this situation where one service calls another service calls another service, and you have that all in the request response like pipeline, then you know that's that's something you want to avoid, right? Because you had a term for that, right? Really, what's that? You had a term for that in the book, right? I mean, it was really just like the the depth, the the call depth, like call the service depth, call yeah. depth. Yeah, yeah. and I essentially, like you want to you you want to avoid having like a large call depth because even if every service is like really fast and returning in under ten milliseconds, it all adds up. So that's one thing you have to look out for. But at the same time, I, I don't necessarily think that in all cases it's faster to just to do it on a single machine right. because y caching is a perfect example, right, in-memory caching. You know, it's much more efficient to have, you know, 10 computers that are providing a caching service than to just put everything on disk and have it all fed from a single machine. So even that case you're talking about network latency is still better than you know disk read latency right that makes sense one other well, thing that i want to point out with your call depth is that uh, most of the time when you're splitting things up into an soa one of the things you're trying to solve is is lowering the complexity of your code and so if you have a service that calls into a service that calls into a service that calls into a service you, you're probably not necessarily solving that particular problem yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, I, think, I think as you're designing something, if you're designing a service-oriented architecture, it's, it's good to have like a higher-level view of where things are going. And if you have like this crazy spaghetti of all these arrows pointing in different directions, you may need to rethink how you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was thinking about this as I was, as I was reading the book, and that uh, that what one of the things you talked about, and I've I've heard talked about a lot in SOA, uh, is that uh, you can you can start transitioning a monolithic application to a service oriented design by taking just pieces of your code in your application and putting them behind some kind of interface, some abstraction. And then after all the access to that goes through this interface, you can move the implementation of it to a service. Yeah, that's right. And actually, I think in the very beginning of the book, I actually say, you know, when you're starting off a new application, you should avoid service-oriented design because it adds complexity and it adds development time to getting things done. And when you're first starting an application out, you generally don't know what features is go are going to be kept and which ones are going to be thrown away. So really the thing that you optimize for the most is iteration speed. Right. And services, for the most part, reduce your iteration speed. Uh, where I find that's not the case is if you're talking about very large teams that need to coordinate. Because when you, when you get to a very large team, like the, the communication overhead is too high, so you have to figure out some way to like logically break things down. And then the other thing is, it's like very complex, very large code bases. It's easier to think about it if you have these abstractions. So I think background work is generally like one of the first things that people look to as far as like separating out into a service, right? If you're having, if you have some sort of like application that you're building that has to go out and update and fetch from a bunch of external feeds, like, you know, when you first start this out, you might do this as just uh, rescue workers that are accessing your models directly and all this other stuff. And that's great. That'll get you pretty far. But then when you get to a stage where the complexity behind those rescue workers is getting greater and greater and the logic behind when they update, how they update is getting worse. And also you find that maybe the SQL database that you're using for your entire app isn't the appropriate place to store all that raw data or process it later then you think, okay, that's the time where you want to say, like, maybe we should separate it out into a service and provide a clear API where you can say, like, okay, start crawling this thing or update this thing or do whatever this is. And then underneath the scenes or under the covers, you know, it's doing all sorts of different things, probably using a messaging system, a NoSQL database to store the raw data or iterate over it. Uh, but the point is, like, all those things are just concealed behind a very clear API that you provide. Okay. The, now, th that, that makes total sense. There were like eight things to talk about in your, in, uh, in your description there. But the, the, the thing that got me off on that track was that when you, when you put all this stuff behind the interface and then you can't really tell if it's, a, if it's part of your local code base or a remote service, does it take extra effort in the code to be able to basically make allowances for the extra latency in talking to the remote service? Generally, I would say it does. Uh, you know, right there, there essentially, when you're talking about a remote service, you have two types. One is synchronous, which is it needs to make a call and it needs to get some sort of response so that you can return something to the user. Uh, that's making the request. And of course, mm -hmm. of course, the other is asynchronous. So that's why I say background things are usually like prime candidates for the first thing that you want to pull out into a service because they're usually asynchronous, which means you can just kick it off. And as long as there's some call that you can make to that service in a synchronous fashion, they'll tell you the status of that background thing, then you're good. And I would definitely say that when you are pulling things out into services, 
for anything that's synchronous, part of the contract of the service is not just the API that you, that you provide, but the uptime you're providing and the guarantees around how quickly you'll send a response. Okay. Right. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a question. It seems like in, in some cases, people start talking about SOA when their application reaches a certain size. So, you know, they, they start out, they've got this little app that does something that's pretty easy to, to manage, to keep in, in your head, and then you move up to kind of a medium-sized application where, you know, it, it's still generally easy enough for your team to keep track of everything that's going on, and then they kind of reach that larger monolithic stage where it's like, okay, now I've got to go and, you know, figure out a whole bunch of stuff before I can add a feature. Um, and it seems like that's usually when they get into SOA. Is is there a good time to, to do that? Is there a good way of gauging that? Or is it just when you see something that is easily or simply split off into a service because it has separate concerns and separate you know, functionality that, that you split it off? I would say generally the, the good time to do that is when the pain becomes so great <laughs> that you have no choice but to start splitting things off. I mean, it's, it's great for some things if you say, okay, this is definitely something that can be self-contained. There's no reason for it to be part of the rest of the code base. And, uh, you know, the example that Josh provided of Solar, like full-text search, that's a perfect example of something that's easy to say it should be totally separate. But... I mean, the other thing is, I'm a real fan of only making services around long-lived features. So I find that uh, I, I've had a bunch of friends in startups where they're, you know, they're building this Rails code base and they start developing all these features, and the code base gets just bigger and bigger, and the test suite takes longer and longer to run. But it still doesn't make sense to break it out into services because one of the problems is like half of those features aren't even getting used and it's like why bother spending the time to like re-engineer those things if they're not getting used so i like taking things that are core to your business or core to what you're doing and you know that's not going to change and pulling that out into a service and then you can like highly optimize it and just make it really really rock solid sounds good that's good one other question that i have is uh I mean, when when I've done SOA, it seems like for the most part I'm using Rails on the front end, and then the majority of the services I build on the back end, if it, if I'm doing like synchronous HTTP calls, are using Sinatra. Is that generally how you approach things, or do you use different uh, types of technology for the different layers? So for the last, I'd say about year and a half or so, my approach has definitely been Rails on the front end. And then for my service layers, I've actually been using Scala with a library called Scalatra, which is just a Scala port of Sinatra. But I've found that, I'd say, maybe over the last six months, that's been starting to shift. One, I'm finding that Rails more and more is just becoming an asset pipeline. I'm using very little of the actual HTML rendering and getting a lot more into client-side rendering using JavaScript. And as far as APIs go... I'm becoming a bit jaded with Scala, so uh, my new favorite thing is Go, but it's, I'm too early in my relationship with Go to tell whether or not this is just like an infatuation with the, the new thing or if it's going to last for a while. Interesting. So one, one other thing that's related to what you brought up is that you tend to be doing a lot of stuff on the front end with, with uh, JavaScript 
uh, frameworks and then APIs on the back end. So um, do you ever run into an instance where the back end calls, you know, from JavaScript are actually kind of an SOA setup where um, you may be calling to multiple services from your JavaScript as opposed to having that front be the Rails app? Yeah, I've, well, th actually, the situation I've been in is usually the service I'm creating is for something that's like a, a high volume or high traffic or very low latency kind of thing. The last two major projects that I've been on where I've done this, uh, it's been time series related data. So the JavaScript would call out directly for that, directly to that to get the raw data, but the Rails app would still be the keeper of all the metadata around time series and, you know, like the stuff that is good for a relational database and it's really easy to make, you know, JSON-based APIs using Rails and Active Record. So that's kind of how it's been split up, which is JavaScript calling to Rails APIs for the metadata and then another service for either full text search or, or raw time series data or stuff like that. That makes sense. So there's something that I want to talk about a little bit, which is deciding how to partition services, like where to draw the lines between services. You talked a bit about that in the book. You, you, you mentioned a few rules, like if I recall correctly, you know, looking at, for instance, if you have a lot of reads and, and a few writes, you can divide things up so that you have different, different services handling those so that the, the, those bulk of those, or, you know, so those occasional writes aren't interfering with with the performance of, of all the reads. You had some other, some other strategies. Now, something that I've seen a few times in projects that have tried to go kind of service-oriented is they'll have basically layers, I guess you could look at it as. And so, like, a, you know, I worked a, on a project where there was a website, there was a command line executable that talked to the services, there was an API, uh, you know, that, that fronted on the back end, and then there were various workers. Uh, and what we spent a lot of time doing was we'd add, you know, feature X and we'd add a way to access feature X in the command line executable and we'd add something to the website for feature X and then we'd have to add a new call to the API for feature X and then we'd have to add a new thing in the back end for feature X. And what was ha basically happening is that we were changing every service or every piece of the architecture every time we added a new feature. And Uncle Bob on the Ape Like blog had a, had a good article about this uh, a while back that was sort of noting the same thing and, and basically saying, you know, this is when, when, when you divide up your services that way, it's, it's a violation of the single responsibility principle. The, the, the principle is keep things that change together together and keep things that, you know, that, and, and so only, you know, if you have a bunch of things that, that change together, find a way to, to put them all together sort of in a, like, you know, slice differently so that they're, they're still all together. And I'm curious if you have any insight into this because it seems like some of the some of the splitting strategies based on how to you know based on uh, like load and stuff like that uh, would wind up with having that that issue of having to change multiple services whenever you add a new feature. Yeah, I mean you can't uh, segment based off load alone. Uh, usually, I, I think like logical function, which is the idea of you know keep things that change together together. The reason I, I singled out load is because I, I personally had the experience where I'm building uh, applications from scratch 
and I have some specific thing, like some specific type of data that's going to get written in. And this is the time series example I was talking about earlier, where I know I'm going to be writing in a ton of time series data, and I need some API for that, and it needs to be backed by something else. Now, the metadata around that time series data can change all over the place, but it's not going to change the core API of writing in raw time series data. If it is going to change the core API, then you need to rethink how the API is designed. To your other point about if you, you know, change a service and then you have to go through and you have to update the command line utility and you have to update the other web thing, I think that's a separate issue and I don't think there's any way for that to go away. I think that's, you know, that, that's going to happen, like, for example, with mobile applications. You have a native iOS app, you have a web mobile app, you have the Rails app, then you maybe have a native Android app, and then you have you know, maybe a command line client. If you add a new feature to a service, you're going to have to go through and update all those, those service clients to either use it or not. Um, mm-hmm. Well, if they, if, they, if they don't use it, then ideally they wouldn't have to update anything. But if they do want to use it, you're obviously going to have to update them. And the way you update them is going to be different for each one. I almost feel like the, I, I don't want to go the route of like XSDs or anything like that. Or, or was it WSDLs? Like web service definition, de- definition <laughs> language. Right. Uh, but I, I almost feel like there is, there's a path forward for having a clear way to say when we define APIs, it's going to be like this so that you can write client libraries that you don't have to do a lot of updating around. And Rails got part of the way there just through like the standard of, of REST, right? You always right. know like there's, there's an index there's a show, there's an edit, you know, all those other things. But I don't think it takes it far enough. And I'm really curious about what, it doesn't seem to me that the Ruby or Rails community is focused enough on this because they're, you know, they're JavaScript framework people like Backbone or Ember, they're focused on the JavaScript side and they have like light hooks into the Rails REST API. But I don't think the Rails REST API is feature rich enough to capture all that. Uh, right. And I'm really curious where uh, the JavaScript community is going to go with it, specifically things like Meteor.js or, or uh, I mean, Parse is a, is a closed source example, but I think they may have the right idea about, you know, we have a way for defining APIs and it's simple to connect into that API using libraries that are provided in any language. Yeah. Sorry, One of the things really that I... Far reaching. <laughs> One of the things that I liked about the book is, is in your REST examples, you do encourage, to some degree, to encourage discoverable services. So you have URLs going into, you know, into the responses, and you and you you actively discourage uh, having you know clients that have to that have to construct URLs. So you're definitely you know you're talking about you know you're not talking about a, you know like WSDLs or or any kind of schemas, but you are talking about having resources that describe themselves and describe how to get to other resources. Or, uh, or even to other states, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I, but but I noticed you you didn't really talk about active resource. Do Do you have anything you want to say about active resource as a technology choice in doing these services? I, I guess at the time I, I don't remember. Like I looked at active resource, and it just seemed to me that it it was trying to provide like uh, you know a low level like model abstraction where you just call these things. But in my mind, like I said, the I don't feel as though the Rails REST API is a legitimate way to design like a, a service that you want to create. 
a lot of times like there are things that you want to include automatically. You don't want to make a service call every time you want like some individual piece of data. I basically like I I just found that I active resource didn't uh it wasn't it didn't feel right. And I also didn't think the performance of it was very good. It seemed to me that Active Resource was trying to make a make it a really fine grained API, you know, basically make it look le- very similar to the calls that you would and queries and things that you would make to the database. And, you know, I think the I don't I don't know how you feel about this, but I think one of the strengths of RESTful SOA has been the fact that it's kind of enforced high granularity or no, low granularity, you know, you know, services that that are not you know, super, super granular, because I think one of the, the bad roads that like the whole Corba community went down back in the day was, was we're going to expose all of our objects as if, you know, all these remote objects, individual tiny remote objects as if they're local objects. And, you know, that's, that's just a terribly leaky abstraction. You can't, you can't pretend that, that, you know, you can interact with hundreds of remote objects, you know, in individual records in a way that's, that's performant. Um, and and behaves you know exactly like they're just they're just local, you know. So I, I kind of like the fact that these RESTful services encourage larger sort of larger requests, bigger requests that don't happen as often, and bundle more things together. Yeah, I I agree with that completely. I think that including like the performance concerns about you know making method calls or whatever, I think it's important uh, when designing a service to say like this is the actual API we want to expose. I mean, I guess, like, with Corba, you could say, like, we're going to write an object and you can call those methods on the object. But, yeah, it, it definitely strikes me as, as a bit of a leaky abstraction. Plus, it's, it's, you know, it couples, you know, the more granular you are, your, your API is, the more your clients are going to be coupled to your exact architecture right now. So, you know, like, the, the active, re- active resource approach to that, where you're basically exposing your records you know, exposing your resources exactly as they stand in the application, that's saying that I expect that this, you know, this inner inner structure is going to stay the same forever. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. So what what else? Um, you, we were we were talking um, before about uh, sort of the well. So this this book has been out for what two years or more now. The, yeah, that's right. It was released in August of two thousand ten. Yeah, and. So it was it was quite timely, and I, I think if you if you just look at the 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 talks that people give at conferences these days, so much of what they talk about is service oriented design. That you know we had we had two talks at Gogoruko this year about that, and so it, it's definitely a, a topical subject. It's <laughs> a current subject. People are very interested in it. Uh, well, I, I can just attest to that really quickly because when I spoke at Aloha Ruby Conference, I had probably half a dozen or more people like right after my talk come up and say, "This is these this is pain that we have right now," mm-hmm. and so it's it's definitely something that people are running into and trying to solve, especially with some of their legacy apps where, you know, this concept you know wasn't something that they had even considered before. Right. So okay. So so two years. That's a really long time in internet technology. I you know we we're talking on the on the pre-call. You, you're saying stuff has changed since then. You have more experience. What is it that you've that you've learned that you didn't get to put in the book because you didn't know it then? Yeah. How are we doing it wrong now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's the new hotness? 
one of the one of the things is I you know I have I have a single chapter in the book about messaging, and uh, it covers specifically RabbitMQ, uh, which I'm not I'm not really using Rabbit anymore. I've moved on to other technologies, but in my mind, messaging is so much more of a core about a service-oriented architecture than I give it credit for in the book, and really that stems from. My experience working in a couple of like very large organizations that have a lot of people, and the thing is like when you come in and you have this small team and you just want to like quickly build something, one of the biggest pain points you'll have is trying to interface with other teams or try and get at data and stuff like that. I feel like designing a proper messaging architecture and a proper like data flow architecture will kind of ease the pain on a lot of those things. So for example, if you just had a policy where you said anything that happens in the application, either a user-directed uh, event or a model update or a worker does something, anything that happens at all has to be an event that gets written to a messaging system that anybody can read off of. And furthermore, there's some other thing that aggregates all those things off the messaging system and dumps them into like a canonical store. It's which could be like Hadoop or something like that. But the point is, it's not the active store. It's just a store that's available so that other people can get at the data later on and build services on top of it. Um, that's one of the things I would talk a bit more about, is this idea that a lot of times when you're building services, uh, you're building it after the fact. Like The feature's already developed. It's already out there. And what you're trying to do is figure out a way to abstract it. Uh, and one of the key hurdles you have in the very beginning in doing that is getting at the data and making it accessible uh, in, in, in a sensible fashion. And if you have a messaging system like that, you can create that service and have it up to date in real time with all the data that's coming through without affecting anybody else in the architecture. And that way you can kind of slowly transition onto using it. That's a pretty cool concept. I mean, have, have you have you built a system that way, or or wished you'd built a system that way? <laughs> uh, I've definitely wished I've built a system that way. I'm trying to get into the habit for new systems of doing things like that. It's kind of hard in the beginning to to do that because then you are talking about a quite a bit of extra architecture. But yeah. <laughs> Right, but like like you were saying before, can't you just kind of start out with uh, you know the simple case and then work your way into you know the more complicated case? Unless you have a large team, like you're saying, where you know, th but then you can have a couple of people just figuring out that infrastructure and architecture while everybody else builds awesome features. Yeah, and the I mean the thing is the approach I always advocate is start it off simple. Don't get crazy with the architecture because the chances are you're just going to throw it away. Yeah. So uh, there's that. Uh, I I guess like in the book I have quite a bit of focus on there's specific code examples like there's Sinatra and there's Rails like Rails three I think was in beta at the time not barely in beta at the time I was writing it so there are Rails two and Rails three examples and I feel like those examples that focus on like a, a framework or whatever don't age very gracefully, whereas if I talked, I think there's room to talk a lot more about design and bring in more specific examples and case studies about, okay, here's how you break things up, instead of focusing as much on like the specific code to create the thing. Yeah. Now, mm. now, now, one of the things that, that I was thinking about as I was reading the book was 
that well, Rails I think did an amazing job. You know, when it when it first appeared on the scene, it it did this amazing job of making database backed web applications really easy to do because it get it it just abstracted away a lot of that stuff and gave you really good libraries and support tools for building those things. And you know, people had been building database backed web applications for a while at that point, but suddenly it was it was a game changer. You know, people you know a lot a lot more people could do that thing. And the service-oriented design that you talk about in your book and that a lot of other people are, are trying these days, it seems like we're in the same sort of time period of you know, pre-Rails where everybody's doing it, everybody is learning what are the right ways to do it. And have you thought about trying to extract this learning and put it in some kind of framework that makes it accessible to a lot more people? I totally agree that it feels like we're in the pre-Rails days of this kind of thing. And I think there is, that's what I was talking about when I'm, when I'm thinking about what the next wave is going to be. Like, what, what is the next Rails? And I think it's going to be a framework that makes creating service-backed applications trivially easy. And, you know, the, it seems to me that like the people who are leading the way on that for over the last, like, year or two have been people who are creating mobile applications, right? But the thing is, like all of those are proprietary stacks, like StackMob and Parse and KinV and all those other ones. I'm really interested in what's going to come of open frameworks that really focus on this idea of creating a service-backed application where the application itself could be three applications, right? Different mobile platforms or a web app or whatever. Okay, but, but you don't have anybody who's, who's working on that or... Someone you would knight to go off and do that. <laughs> uh, sadly, I, I, I'm unavailable for doing that. But I think, you know, I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm curious about what Meteor JS is doing. I mean, I know they're doing the real-time thing, but it seems to me to make sense. Like, they're already committed to the open source thing. And it seems like they would be in a position to actually create a framework like that. I'm a little sad because... Honestly, I think the community that's most likely to come up with something like this at this point is the Node community. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was expecting I, you to say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quite honestly, I don't want to write JavaScript on the server. Sorry, Node people. <laughs> so we'll see. This, this podcast and my other podcast are going to have a fight now. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, okay, so... Paul, I had I had one or two little questions from the from the book. One was uh, okay. So, so all of your stuff is built around HTTP and pretty much REST. And I noticed that you used the status code four hundred to indicate sort of the generic error condition for a request. And uh, it seems like uh, people doing RESTful servers or services in Rails, uh, the mostly they use four twenty two. Is the code, and I and looking this up, I think it's the the codes indicate what 400 is about bad syntax and 422 is about bad semantics. Have, do you, do you still do 400 now in your in your services? Do you think that's a good choice? Do, how do, how does that compare with the 422, or is there just is this a, a niggling detail and I should shut up? Sorry, I think my microphone muted. <laughs> Uh, I'm actually looking at it. So the thing is, I actually, 
when it comes to restful design, I am not very religious or dogmatic about it. And I feel the same way about testing and about all these other things, which is I try to be as pragmatic as possible. And if a 400 works, then it works. Uh, you know, I don't care about whether it's a, it's a 422 or not. Like, if people think that makes more sense, that's what I'll use. I actually hadn't seen that at the time I was writing. So if that's what people are like moving towards as their standard for writing RESTful services, that's definitely what I would use going forward. But I haven't so far. So far, I've still been using like a 400 as like a generic thing. I, actually, I did want to loop back real quick to things I would update about the book because, because you reminded me be, uh, when you said like, most of it's focused on REST and HTTP services and all this other stuff. And I would say, if I were going through again, I would probably say for internal services, don't be afraid of actually creating you know, a, a regular like TCP-based service with a line protocol. Don't be afraid of actually defining a protocol. Uh, because in the end, when you're talking about RESTful services, you're still defining a protocol. The only difference is it's defined through the URI and the data that you pass back and forth. Well, I, I guess uh, one thing I had become interested in, uh, I'd say about a year ago, for doing that, for saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to do services, but I'm not going to make them HTTP REST-based services, uh, I looked into 0MQ, which I still find pretty interesting, but the, I'm not sure if it's totally the way to go, but with my Go stuff, that I've, I've recently been programming in Go. For that, I've been doing like line protocol-based services, and I find that it's just, you know, it's a lot lower overhead, and I'm just defining everything very clearly from from day one. But they're still TCP-based. That's correct. I mean, these are for these are for services that are only like internal in the architecture. Right? For anything that's exposed uh, you know, to extern external clients like third parties, I would still make those HTTP-based services. Okay, you, you haven't hit the point where you need to do a UDP-based service yet? I had put something up uh, briefly. It was, it was for time series-based data where it's like you don't really care, like you're just trying to get the data in aggregate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I've done okay. that too. Uh, I, I've done that for things like you know, where you're doing log aggregation or a bunch of metrics that you're tracking and you don't care about, like, it's okay if something gets lost. Uh -huh. So Josh mentioned uh, error returns, and uh, I, I, I liked the uh, little point you made about including error codes, including application, not, you know, you've got like the 400 or the 422, whichever, uh, that comes back, but then internally for each each exception um, you have, you have an actual uh, error code. Can you explain why to do that? Yeah, for that, I found that uh, <laughs> I actually started doing it initially because guys who were programming in statically typed languages and accessing my services wanted that mm -hmm. uh, because they wanted to know what particular piece of business logic wasn't met that caused the error. And they wanted to do a match based on, you know, a code as opposed to some human-readable string or whatever. And I just carried it forward from there. I thought, okay, well, if there's like a well-defined case that I know about, you know, it's kind of like an enum or whatever. Like, why not provide an actual code that, that other programmers can match against? Yeah, which is a lot more reliable than matching against uh, an error message that might change. Yeah, exactly. 
I have, a, I have a totally different tangent here. I've been, I've been wanting to bring this up the, the whole show. And that's, um, are you familiar with Conway's Law? Uh, okay, so, so Conway's Law um, is quite old. It, it comes from like the 60s. And it says that organizations which design systems are constrained to produce designs which are copies of the communication structures of these organizations. And I, 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 the, the most clever rephrase of that I heard is that a group that has four teams will produce a four-pass compiler. <laughs> <laughs> a four-pass compiler? I'm not yeah. sure follow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you have a, a team building a compiler and and, and there's four, you know, there's four teams on it, you know, you get a four pass compiler. So, so I I know that in the book you talked a lot about agility and the development process and how teams can be structured to work better on service oriented uh, structured applications. How big a deal is that to deal with when you're when you're taking your developers who are used to working on one big application and breaking them into into smaller teams that can work on these smaller components and services that talk to each other. And uh, like how, mu how much of a challenge is that and, and how much do people have to plan for that? So I, I Honestly, I think the challenge is mainly a top-down challenge, which means I, I, I think the only people with the power to, to affect change are you know, the people who actually set the team structures and they would have to enforce it. Uh, so you're talking about you know the CEO of a company or you know somebody fairly high up. So well, let me before I get to that, let me talk about the first point, which is uh, Conway's law. You know, if you have four teams, you're going to have four systems or four mm -hmm. services. That's one of the reasons I talk about like uh, long-lived services, things that are fairly well defined. Because ideally, if it's something that's going to be around for a very long time and it's fairly static, like that's another indication that that's a good service, like that's a good split, is if you have this set of functionality that's fairly static, it's not going to change. Then that's a service that you can create, and then at that point, it moves into operations mode. So it, it becomes entirely feasible to have more services than you have teams, right? Mm -hmm. Although, generally, I would agree with the, with the idea that the, <laughs> the architecture of a system tends to reflect the political landscape of, a, of an organization. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the thing about breaking people into teams is that uh, I've become fairly opinionated about my hatred for large teams. You know, I've worked on teams as small as just me or teams that are you know, 20 or more contributing to the same thing. I mean, I guess the largest team I ever worked on was 2,000, but they weren't all contributing to the same code base. But I find that as the team size grows, and you, if you have all the people in the exact same code base contributing, it just becomes really, really hard to get things done, like to create new features and deploy them. You know, and, and a lot of people have come up with ways to kind of ease that pain Generally, they're around having a really like hardcore process, right? Nothing goes in unless there's test suite tests written around it, and that way you know like when you deploy something new or when you're working on a new feature, you can be sure that it's going to work because otherwise the tests are going to break. But it still doesn't help you with the fact that you may have thousands of source files and hundreds of thousands of lines of code, and you have to jump around all over the place to figure out what's doing what. So I become a fan of this idea that you have to like politically enforce a max team size. And I think the max ideal max team size is somewhere around six to eight. And yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. 
I also believe that those teams have to be cross-functional, which means that they should be able to deliver a feature, ideally a user or customer-facing feature, from start to finish without having to pull in a separate you know, team. That's not always the case if you're talking about infrastructure teams, but I think you, know, you have to get to a fairly large level before you can talk about actually having infrastructure teams who, in that case, then they still are cross-functional, but your customer is other people in the organization that are going to use your infrastructure. So you're, you're keeping the team's uh, call depth low as well. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's, it's all it's almost it's, like somebody said that the the structure of the program mimics the structure of the the team. <laughs> yeah. So if you keep the team called up, well, yeah, no, no, never mind, never mind. <laughs> no, it's it's less about that. It's more about a team is a full mesh network, and you have a limited amount of bandwidth for everybody to communicate. <laughs> so keeping the team size small is good. And then the other thing is. You know, a single programmer can only write so much code. So if you keep the team size small, you're not going to get single code bases that are insanely massive. You know, like, I I would rather have, like, the Ruby Gems ecosystem is a great example, right? Like, when you go to write a Rails program or whatever, you're, you're actually dealing with God knows how many lines of code, but you don't really have to worry about all that because it's abstracted out into separate gems written by separate teams, and you just have to worry about the interfaces into those, for the most part, unless you know you find a bug in one of the libraries you're using. But I like that idea of separating those things out and having you know taking these different like bricks and putting them together to build something else. Have you considered a career in masonry? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's actually my fallback. Uh, you know, I'm not so sure this whole programmer thing is going to work out. I think it may be a flash in the pan. So. <laughs> Masonry's high on the list. Yeah, hey, they, you know, brick walls, they've been around for ages. Exactly. <laughs> They're not going away. Do you keep your masonry teams low, too? So I have another uh, tangent that I want to go off on, um, mainly because I think that when, when most people talk about SOA, they talk about the organization and they don't talk about security. And so I was wondering what your approach was to security as far as, you know, most of the queuing systems. Well, I take that back. If you're using RabbitMQ or some of these others, you can set up some kind of authentication around, you know, who can put stuff on the queue. But as far as like doing synchronous calls and things, um, what what techniques do you typically use in order to make sure that the request is actually a legitimate request from uh, authorized user or whatever? Right. So. <laughs> Security is a sensitive topic because it's obviously not going to be the same for, for every organization, right? But generally speaking, I think there are like two types of security that you're talking about. There's the customer-facing security, and then there's the internal security. Now, generally in web startups, you don't really have to worry about internal security because you're hiring somebody, and if you're hiring somebody, you trust that they aren't going to take the data inside the system and use it in some, you know, some, some bad fashion. Obviously, that doesn't work if you're talking about defense contractors or a lot of times people in the finance industry, they have heavily siloed you know, bits of data that other teams aren't able to see. Uh, and they have that for regulatory reasons as well. So my view on security kind of falls down in those organizations, which is also generally why I don't try to work with that very often. <laughs> but for internal stuff, I just like to say, keep open to the developers, trust that the people you hired aren't criminals, and just try and get stuff done. 
I mean, if you did hire criminals, then that's unfortunate, and you have to fire them and, and do what you have to do. But uh, when you're talking about customer-facing security, so you have a user system, the customer, let's say the customer owns their data, and they're able to control in a very granular fashion who's able to see it, then the only thing you need to make sure of is that any requests that are made for a user uh, pass through that token, and you make sure that, you know, that any data that's accessed inside the system is always accessed on behalf of that user. And then if you have internal systems that programmers are writing, they're just doing like background jobs or whatever, and they're not doing something on behalf of a specific user, I, I think that's the way I separate those things. As far as like what method I use to secure it, there's OAuth if you're talking about providing services where other third parties can make requests on behalf of the user. And the, you know, the chapter on security touches on that. And then it also touches on HMAC-based security, which I'm not so sure is, is a necessary step at this point. I, 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 have a, I have a different approach to the question, and that's uh, in, it, when you were talking in the book about, um, uh, okay, great, you know, you've built this thing as an internal service, now you can open it up to the public as an external service. And I, now I, I have to cop to not reading the chapter on security, but in the, in, the, in the earlier mention, you don't talk about any of the security-related concerns of, oh, I have this internal service, I'm just going to open it up to the public. Right. Yeah, I guess I don't, I don't talk about the... I mean, I present, in the security chapter, I present like the two different methods for, for securing stuff, is the, the HMAC-based method, which is signing stuff you have like... API keys, you know, kind of like Amazon where you get sure. uh, a, a key and a secret key and you use that to sign requests. Uh, mm -hmm. And then there's the other, which is OAuth. But neither of those approaches really talks about security of customer data, which is something that you have to worry about more on the model level than at the service level, right? Well, I, well, well there, there, there's that, but there's also what different clients are allowed to do, you know, like role-based authorization that you know, you know, your internal application, oh, sure, they should be able to insert new user data, but pu the public, you know, using your API should only be able to view that data, not modify it. Right. But again, that's, that's something that you're talking about at the, at the model level and not really at the API level. Like, you need to validate those things. Like, there was this, uh, I remember, like, last week or the week before, there was this, you know, app on Hacker News that was, like, you know, replicate your data onto, you know, onto AWS Glacier or something like that, from Dropbox to that. And they had this security flaw where they had actually exposed people who signed up their, their AWS keys. Like, you, you could just go to, like, users slash 23 and see that user. Oh, man. I mean, tons, oh, of, tons of people have done that, and I'm pretty sure, like, almost every Rails developer, like, the first time they wrote Rails apps, they didn't secure against that. Right, the they left is, the show action wide open. Exactly, and that has that has less to do with like designing an API and more to do with just like making sure that you have in your model layer security that makes sense. And I think that's another thing like that a proper like RESTful API will obscure from you. It, it obscures the complexities of security so that it should just do that. And then if you make a request that's not valid, it should return, you know, an unauthorized response. Right. I'm not, I, that probably isn't like an answer that people would hope. They would probably want to hear like, oh yeah, just use this library and the whole thing's done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, isn't there a library to just do that? <laughs> okay. 
Uh, I've been using CanCan, but still you have to think about who can access what, and you actually have to make those declarations. And if you don't, then you're wide open. Right. All right. Well, it looks like we're about out of time. Are there any other topics that we ought to go over before we wrap this up? I have one quick one. Okay. Typhoeus. How do I pronounce it? Uh, that was actually correct. Oh, awesome. I've been doing it right all this time. Uh, yeah, actually, I, I, I brought that up just because I wanted to say Typhoeus is a, is a terrific library. You know, I, I've used it on a, on a lot of stuff, and uh, I, it's one of my, definitely one of my preferred HTTP client backends. And, and I also tend to use it as an example of good API design, so very nice. Uh, thank nice. you. Actually, it's funny because if I had the chance to do that now, <laughs> I would make it very different yeah. uh, than it is. Yeah, well... One, I wouldn't use a native library at all. I would just use uh, threads uh, and a connection pool and stuff like Fair that. Enough. Yeah. Like Ruby. I'd probably change up the API a little bit. I feel like there were, there were some spots in that API where I tried to make it magical and the abstraction leaked a bit uh, and it didn't provide me like, the really like, right kind of power that I wanted. And part of that has to do with, I think, a little bit about shortcomings in Ruby as a language for designing in parallelism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm kind of enamored with Go right now. Like the, the things built into the language for parallelism are, it, it seems like it's fairly clear. And if I'm going to design a parallel library, it's easier to create an API that other programmers can understand and not shoot themselves in the foot with. Yeah. So... Uh... Why did you call it Typhoeus in the first place? Originally, I wanted to call it Hydra because I just thought, oh, it's parallel, so it's like a multi-headed beast of legend. But the thing is, I, I did a search on that name. It seemed like it was too widely used. So I just thought, okay, how can I, how can I come up with something a little bit more obscure? <laughs> and you didn't go with the obvious Hectianothere? I <laughs> I, I was going to point out that uh, it sounds like Avdi has typhoid fever. He's <laughs> raving about it. Anyway, um, let's get into the picks. Uh, Josh, what are your picks? I just got uh, that. You just what? got what? <laughs> it took me a few seconds. What to I make the ty- No, no, no. It, it, it just it took me a few seconds to connect typhoid fever and typhoid fever. I got it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, we're having one of those days. <laughs> 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 oh man! Oh, okay, okay. I, th- I think we need to uh, quickly go to picks, right? Yeah, no kidding. Right. I make a terrible joke and <laughs> nobody laughs, and then it, and then it's like, oh, now I get it. No, that was awesome. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Um, okay, my first pick is uh, really simple. It's HTTP status es. So HTTP statuses. It's a really just nice little website you go there and it tells you what the codes mean and I, I use it frequently whenever I'm doing you know things like reading Paul's book uh, and then I have uh, some some uh, a little bit of self-serving uh, stuff here uh, I have uh, two pics of videos from the latest Gogoruko and they're both topical to service-oriented design uh, so th- uh, both uh, you know Jack Danger Canty did a talk on mega rails and David Copeland gave a talk on services scale backgrounding and whiskey tango foxtrot is going on here. 
whiskey tango uh, foxtrot. <laughs> that's the family safe pronunciation. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so th- there are different takes on on the topic. You know, both of them talked about things from a more holistic uh, viewpoint of we're dealing with big applications. Let, uh, what are the strategies we can use for handling this complexity? And uh, services were significant components of both of their approaches. So both good videos, both half hour long. Oh, and uh, since we didn't put it in the, in the announcements uh, in the show, I'm also going to mention the Ruby Newbie project. Uh, we've had a couple uh, people do videos, like a half dozen videos or so. I want like hundreds of videos. I think everybody should do a video who's new to Ruby. And you know, the, the videos we've got have all been great. And I, it, it's, I, I just want to see a whole bunch more. They're, it, it's really great watching them. So just Definitely. go to Ruby, you know, go to com. There's a link in the sidebar for Ruby Newbie Project, and uh, and definitely like we're not going to let these videos get lost. So if you know, we'll we'll collect them all somewhere uh, once we once we have them all. You mean like Pokemon? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just like Pokemon. <laughs> you get you you get a little uh, you know USB drive with a Ruby Newbie on it. Okay, right. that's the yeah, okay, moving right along. Who's next? Uh, Avdi, why don't you go next? All right, well, um, I think my only pick today is a paper that, uh, that I discovered uh, because somebody posted on the Objects on Rails mailing list, and it's called uh, Classes versus Prototypes, Some Philosophical and Historical Observations. It's from 1996, and it's just a really, really interesting look into the philosophical underpinnings of class-based object systems versus prototype-based object systems like you'd find in, in uh, well, most commonly these days, uh, JavaScript. And, uh, you know, and, and the different ways of thinking about the world that those reflect. Um, I really enjoyed the whole thing, and, and, and uh, I definitely recommend taking a look at it. All right. So I kind of been out of my mind crazy this week because I just got back from uh, Aloha Ruby conference on Friday. And so I don't have any picks. What I'm going to do instead is I'm just going to um, remind you that we do have a few other shows that, uh, that at least I'm involved in. Um, so the first one is uh, JavaScript Jabber, where we actually talk about JavaScript. JavaScript's come up a couple of times here. And then the other one is the Ruby Freelancer show. And uh, in that show, we talk about some of the challenges with consulting or freelancing or otherwise providing services in in the programming space. So uh, if you're interested in either of those, then uh, feel free to go check those out. And uh, I'll go ahead and let Paul give us his picks. So my uh, four, my first pick is uh, a book. It's Getting Started with D3 by Mike Dewar. I've been doing, you know, obviously like everybody else, quite a bit of JavaScript programming. And I've been working with visualizations, like time series visualizations and stuff for a while. And I found D3, which is a JavaScript toolkit for creating visualizations. I I really think it's brilliant code. And I'm pretty sure it's going to become like the jQuery of doing visualizations uh, in the browser. So the Getting Started book is is a pretty good introduction to it, uh, and Mike's a really good guy. <laughs> My next pick is just Go, the language, <laughs> uh, golang.org. Uh, I've recently started writing a production server or something that will be deployed in production later 
uh, in Go, and I found it to just be uh, a pleasure to work with. And my reason for moving to Go uh, stemmed from kind of a frustration of working with Scala. Uh, I thought Scala was the way forward, but I'm beginning to become disenchanted with it, so Go is what I'm looking at now. My next one is um, Kafka, which is a distributed messaging system open source by LinkedIn. Like I, I had mentioned before that messaging is like one of the core, one of, one of the things that I find to be a core of any service-oriented architecture. And Kafka, I think, is really interesting uh, because of the fact that it takes a very simple view on how messaging should work. And it's almost like uh, a distributed log file that you can just read from at any point and you design around that. And then my last one is also a messaging-based one. Uh, I saw that Bitly last week open-sourced their like, distributed real-time messaging system called NSQ. And I, I, read, I read about that and I thought it was a pretty interesting approach uh, and design around distributed messaging. And I also thought it was cool because they did it uh, in Go. <laughs> so those are my picks. Cool. So what is it about Go or Scala, I have to ask, that, that makes you want to jump in on those as opposed to maybe JavaScript or uh, Ruby or something? Basically, uh, the reason why I, I, I'm looking at those instead of Ruby is really just performance-based. You know, if, if I have my choice, I'll write Ruby code because that's, like, any of these other languages, they're just going, like, the, the bar that's set is Ruby as far as, like, my joy with, like, working with language and writing the code. Uh, and none of them, I think, is actually going to meet that. But for performance reasons, I have to like move to another language and look at that, you know, because like re actual real threading, which I know you can get in JRuby or Rubinius, but um, you know, even still, like it's it's fairly trivial to create an app in like an API in Scala that can handle thousands and thousands of requests per second. Uh, on a single machine, whereas generally with Ruby, when you're talking about handling that kind of load, you're talking about many, many servers. So it's really just a performance thing. With Go, I mean, my interest in it is it's it has the asynchronous stuff built in, like Node does. Uh, I don't know why. I just find Node like the, the the callback spaghetti and the you know writing it on the server to be a little bit distasteful. Uh, I think it's it's kind of hard to keep it organized. Maybe if you're talking about smaller things, it's easier. I mean, I, I don't have enough experience with Node to really say that like, like the jury is out on that one for me. But yeah, it, it's just, I don't, I'm not sure that Node is, is the thing I would use to build like hardcore server-side architecture. Uh, whereas when I'm looking at Scala or I'm looking at Go, that's what I'm looking for is something where I can create like a scalable distributed system and there are primitives built in the language that make that easier to do. Okay, cool. Well, let's go ahead and wrap the show up. Um, and uh, I just want to remind everybody, you can go sign up for Ruby Rogues Parlay at rubyrogues.com. You can also enter the Ruby Newbie Project by going to the same website. And I don't think there are any major events or anything else coming up. Um, we should announce our next book. Oh, absolutely. You want to take care of that for us? Uh, yeah, it's uh, as everyone probably can tell by now. It's the book "Practical Object-Oriented Design in Ruby" by Sandy Metz. I did not see that coming. 
<laughs> yeah, because you've been sleeping under a rock. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we haven't picked a time, or, or I mean a date, uh, for our book club episode, but uh, it'll probably be uh, uh, sometime in November or early December. Yeah, and I've had a few people asking which rogues are going to be at RubyConf, and I believe that uh, Josh is going. Yeah, I'm going to be doing a talk. And I will also be there. I will not be speaking, which is kind of a nice thing at a conference. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, my, my, my talk is in the, like, the last part of the last day, so I get to spend the whole conference worrying about it. Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> What's your talk on? Uh, I'm, I'm doing an expanded version of the Thinking and Objects talk that I tried out at Steel City Ruby in oh, excellent. August. Yeah, yeah I, I watched that one. It was good. Oh, cool. Well, I'm going to make it twi- uh, 50% longer. Awesome. <laughs> Your talk is Avdi approved. <laughs> Great. Uh, all right. Well, uh, we'll wrap the show up then. We'll catch you all next week, and thank you for listening. Bye, folks. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.